Hey, everybody, it is Chris Aiken from the Classic Metal Show and the Aftershocks podcast. And before we show you this next video, just wanted to remind you that you can add the CMSPN to your Roku. That's right. If you have a Roku or a Roku TV, just click the link below. It's in the scroll. It's also in the description of this video. And make sure you're logged into your Roku account on your computer, and it will add it right to your Roku. It'll add it, then you just refresh your device, and bang, there it is. That way you can watch all of our episodes, whether it's us or Skull Sessions or Talk To Me or Aftershocks or Classic Metal Show. I'll be on your TV. It's a deal, right? And it's free, free. All right, make sure you do that. And now here's the video you actually came to see. Hi, this is Terry Glaze, and you're listening to Drag the Waters with Joshua. All right, guys, it is now time to drag the water some more here on the CMSPN.com, the CMSPN Podcast Network, and uh, we are with the great Terry Date. How are you doing, Terry? I'm doing good. That's that's a good inter- good introduction. Great. I like uh-huh. it. Anyone watching or listening right now, if you own any CDs from any of your favorite bands, Terry Date's name is on it. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't work on it. I just put my name on it, right? Right. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, you know, you go back all the way to to some of my earliest favorite stuff as being Metal Church and all the way way on to the new Deftones album. So you've been a staple in my CD collection. Oh, thank you. Yeah, it's... uh... It's a lot of fun. I mean, working with friends is easy. It's an easy job. Right, right. Um, I guess just a quick, you know, do some housekeeping here on this one. Um, you know, what got you into producing, you know, and uh, and what got you into that side of, of the uh, music business? Uh, I started out as an engineer, so producing wasn't the first thing. Uh, I was just uh, friends. All my friends played instruments, and I didn't have the temperament for it, so... I'd be hanging out and I wanted to do something constructive. So um, I'd turn knobs, you know, and, and I just sort of took it from there. Now you've got a kind of a style of, of there's, I don't think there's a Terry date sound, you know, you've, you've, you go into a band and you make them sound the best that they can. Um, what, what is that in you that makes you, you do that and not just, you know, this is Terry date sound and you're going to sound like how I'm going to make you sound. Um, well, I just, to me, it's always an honor when somebody asks you to work with them to make their record, to get their music out to the public. Um, I don't feel like it's my job to, if if somebody wanted to buy my record, then it would be a different story, but they're buying the band's record. Um, I've always been a fan of music more than a musician, so I always listen to the music as a fan, as a non-musician would listen to it, as an audience member would listen to it. So by, by doing that, it's my job, I feel, to make sure the, that I'm transparent and the band is coming through without anybody interrupting their creativity. And on to the, the Pantera side of your stuff, you know, the latest thing that you've done with the band would be going in and remixing, remastering, um, reinventing the steel. Uh, what, and it sounds amazing, by the way, everybody that I've talked to that's listened to it, you know, you, you, you brought it up a notch, uh, to where it was. So, you know, going into that, you know, what do you do to, to really dive into it? I mean, did you get the tapes and the files and, and just, you know, break them down or, or how did you go about doing that? 
Well, first of all, Sterling Winfield did a great job. He's a great friend of mine, and um, uh, he did an amazing job with the band. Uh, as you probably know, I I had to I couldn't I couldn't keep up with the band for one more record. <laughs> That's why I had to I had to go. Um, but I was in contact with him throughout the record. Um, uh, Sterling did a great job with the with the tracking of it. Um, I knew what the band. I mean, doing four records with a band. Oh, yeah. um, I, I you know I knew what they wanted, even though they weren't there. And what I didn't get right, um, Rex or Phil or Sterling would let me know what they felt I could do better. Um, so it was you know it was it was kind of. Well, it was extremely bittersweet, actually, to sit down and listen to. I, I got the files on Pro Tools um, sent to me, and um, to sit down and listen to those um, those tracks. You know, they, you know, hearing, you know, hearing hearing Dimes guitar after all those years um, and stuff that I wasn't involved with. It, it was hard, you know, to yeah. to get going on it, to tell you the truth, but. Um, once I did, it was just, you know, just brought back great memories. So it was good, uh, just good Pantera music. Was there anything in the files that you found that you maybe didn't hear the first time around when you heard Reinventing the Steel? Um, well, there's always things you don't necessarily, I mean, things get tucked in a lot. So there's little things here and there, but now the big picture was there. So there was no, no big surprises, really. And, you know, going back to starting your, your career with Pantera, not your actual career, but, you know, starting working with the guys in Pantera, uh, going back to those days, had you heard of the band prior to, you know, getting asked to produce? Obviously, you know, they were kind of uh, big in the underground, but, but hadn't broke out yet. Yeah, they were, uh, I, I had not, um, my manager at the time, actually, he, was recently my ex-manager, but still good friend, um, <clears throat> sent me a tape and said, these guys are really good. They're getting signed and, you know, you should check them out. So it was a, a cassette demo of Cowboys from Hell. <clears throat> and it was amazing. Um, I didn't realize how amazing it was until years later, you know, how amazing the band was. But, um, yeah, I, I hadn't heard from them, but as soon as I got that tape, I went down to Texas to meet them and um, we just, you know, we, we got in a van, drove up to one of their shows up by uh, the Oklahoma line, I think. Um, and sitting in a van for an hour, you know, is how we got to know each other. And um, they needed to figure out if they could trust me, you know, yeah. for a long time. So it took, it took that, you know, at, at the end of that day, we were good. I had a nickname and everything. So once I got a nickname, I knew I was in. And what was that nickname? Rope King. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, going into in, into Cowboys from Hell, they had pretty much self-produced four albums prior to that. So going into to working with them, could you tell that they knew what they were doing in the studio? Did that make it easier on you? Did it make it harder on you? Uh, you know, kind of a, a push and pull with them kind of knowing what they were doing in the studio. Well, you know, Vinny and Dimes' dad was an engineer and had his own studio. So they grew up basically in the studio. So they knew what they were doing. But 
um, they hadn't up to that point, they hadn't worked with anybody on, um, on a national level, I guess, you know, so everything they had done in the past was normal and right. Um, but this was, they, I think they were wanting to see and validate that what they knew was right. And, um, from the very beginning, me and Vinny worked side by side. He's a great engineer. We sat together getting those sounds. You know, it was, it was not something that I did. It was something that me and Vinny started. And then the rest of the band, um, I think, you know, Dime would kick in and then Rex would come in and then Phil would have his say on things. And I was always referencing with each one of the band members influences, things that, you know, records that they liked for their instruments. So I was always trying to find out what they liked in other bands. And then I was trying to adapt that to what they did to their band. Now, I know from my limited time in the studio, you you would sit with somebody and, and I, I'm always picking someone's brain anyway. So when you first sit, sit down with them during the Cowboys from Hell era, are they drilling you on, you know, what was it like working, working with Metal Church and Overkill and things like that? Um, probably, but I can't think of any examples. I mean, one of the reasons, uh, I think they had me, they, they wanted to use me is, uh, they were fans of Soundgarden. So I'm sure that they were wanting to, you know, hear some stories there. Um, but I don't remember exactly, you know, I mean, there's, you've seen the videos. It was kind of a wild ride from, from from the beginning. So it wasn't a lot of, sitting down and contemplating things. It was pretty reactive the whole time. <laughs> as as hard partying as they were and as as larger than life as they were, how were they in the studio? Were they focused and and professional in the studio and then were wild at other times or was it just kind of wild at all times and, and hopefully you got some good takes in there? Um, they were incredibly serious, but they were wild at all times. Um, um <laughs> But I mean, it was it was completely deadly serious to them. Um, but when things started getting too intense, when things started to get, you know, uh, when the fun started leaving, um, somebody would call for a black tooth, and so we'd all stand in a circle and you know have a black, have some have some have a black tooth, um, and then everything was fun again, you know. And so there was. It, it was a combination of everything. You know, there was, there was never a dull moment, but there was never any screwing around. Those guys were serious, you know, about what they wanted to do. And I think Dime definitely changed heavy metal guitar, you know, sitting there with, with this, you know, with the Dean and the Randalls and all that, you know, you know, working with, with other guitarists before that, you know, what was your uh, take on his sound? Um, you know, the way I always work is, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't grab a guitar player and say, you know, I I like your guitar and and your rig, but you should use mine or you should use this. I always wanted, you know, unless it was just a piece of crap, (laughs) you know, I, I wanted the guy, I mean, that's his sound. That's the stuff that he, he has pride in like developing that whole thing. So I never, I never got in the way of the Randall or the Dean or anything because that was his thing. Um, we, uh, we always attempted to try a tube amp, at least in the early days, and it, we never, it never worked. 
Um, he just liked the crunch of that Randall. And so really my job was not to change his sound. My job was to accurately reflect what he was hearing in front of his amp at low volumes in the control room. If I could make it, if I could give him that feel at a low volume, um, in here, then when I turn it up, it would be even better. So that was, that was the goal, you know, try to get that. Some of the vocal performances on Cowboys from Hell are out of this world. You know, this law, I mean, I'm sorry, uh, Cemetery Gates and, and, you know, Medicine Man, a lot of the second half stuff where Phil's just way out of the register. Um, you know, kind of go back to kind of recording that. I mean, obviously Cemetery Gates, the, the incredible, you know, where Dime's doing the, the squeal and then, you know, Phil's mimicking it and stuff like that. I mean, that, that had to have been insane in the studio. Yeah. And I wish I could remember exactly how that all went down. Um, <laughs> I mean, it's been a long time. And like I said, it, it was like, uh, th- those were, you know, those are Hunter S. Thompson years for me, you know, <laughs> um, uh, but, uh, yeah, what, um, back then we didn't have any, we weren't manipulating anything. So everything on those records, there were no samples, there was no auto tuning, there was no, you know, nothing that we couldn't get out of a foot pedal or, um, or an out piece of outboard gear, you know, so there was no fancy finagling. So, um, I can't remember, I, I don't remember if, if Phil did his vocal part and then Dime mimicked it or vice versa. I can't remember that, but it was pretty, uh, it was pretty earth shattering when, when he did it. Cause that's all Phil get. I mean, that's not me manipulating tape or anything, you know? So it's some amazing stuff. And, and you got to take those songs and then you see like the rush of videos and, you know, you're like, how does this happen? You know, where they're playing to half a million people. And, and the, these are those songs that you just worked on, you know, just a, a few months prior, you know, and domination to this day at that performance is a legendary performance. And, you know, all those songs coming together under your watch. Yeah. Um, it's, it's, you know, it's a lot more, um, and it's a lot more fun to look back after 20, 25 years than like a year, then right after it was released, because <clears throat> first of all, by the time I finish, you know, any record really, but especially theirs, um, I need a break from all of it. You know, I can't, I can't listen to it anymore. So I don't usually listen to any record that I do for a long time, 10 years, maybe sometimes, um, because I just, all the dirty laundry's there, you know, I just hear everything that's wrong with it. I can't enjoy it like a first time listener. Um, but on on top of that, as far as what happened to them, as far as them, you know, well, they didn't blow up after Cowboys from Hell. You know, that they they did the typical kind of, um, you know, you, you sell about a quarter of a million copies of the record on your first record if you're a good band. And then you triple that on your next record and you just build your your audience that way. Um, so it took a little while. But um, I was, you know, I was in contact with them all the time. I'd see him whenever we were, they were on tour and I was close by, but, um, you know, quite honestly, I was like busy as hell back then. So I'd finish that record and I'd be on to something else. And, and then, you know, a year later I'd go back and do another record. And I mean, we were talking all the time, but I, you know, I was like in the middle of 
you know, in the middle of it, the thick of it back then. So, oh, yeah, definitely <laughs> a, a hardworking producer at the time. Uh, you know, so when they come back for vulgar display of power, you, you know, what was your first initial response to the, to those songs coming to you? Like, well, they, they just, uh, they wanted to be heavier. You know, they feel especially they wanted to be heavier than cowboys, you know, and typically, what we did in the studio is those songs would get written in the studio. Um, cause we, we had their dad's studio. So it was sort of like, it was like home recording mm-hmm. is today back then. So, um, they would come in, dime would have a riff or, or Vinny would have a drum part. Um, and, or Rex would have something, you know, somebody would have a, have a kernel of an idea and it would, it would, quickly turned into a song, you know, they would sort of grab the riff, decide what the second riff was going to be, what the chorus was going to be, intro, middle break, and we would shuffle it all around. I, I, you know, we, what we would do is we would figure out the intro. I'd record, I'd start tape rolling. We'd record a rough intro. Then we'd figure, they would figure, well, let's go to this riff here and decide how many times. And then I just, I just punch in the whole band, you know, so it was just like a rough punch in constructing the song to the end. Um, all rough performances, kind of choppy and stuff. And then I'd make a rough mix of it. We'd take it in the car and we'd drive around for a day or so or the rest of the day or whatever and just listen to it and kind of get an idea of what we could change and, and what we needed to tweak on it. And, um, and then we'd go back in and we'd record the song that way. So that's pretty much how all the songs would get done, except there were some, um, a few songs that Dime would kind of rough out in his closet, which was like a little eight track studio in his house late at night or whatever. He would rough out some, some rough idea and then we'd record it, record that. But, yeah. Would you say that's why there's probably not a ton of extra bonus songs over the years, you know, because even when they did the reissue of Vulgar, they only had one song that they didn't put on the original pressing. And yeah, and I'd forgotten that song was even around, you know, oh. that was, uh, but yeah, that their feeling was, you know, their feeling was they didn't want to release any extra songs than what was going to go on the record, you know, and I was trying to get them to do, Hey, you know, there's, soundtrack stuff we could you know we could do stuff we could sell some of these songs to like a movie or whatever they wanted 10 songs (laughs) and you know because you know that's what you get paid for is 10 songs on a record you know you don't get publishing for anything more so why make more you know and um anyway so that's what they they always just did exactly the same amount of songs that they were going to record and Vulgar being such a legendary album, you know, I mean, I, I wonder how many bands that you got to work with just because of that one album, you know, they're like, we got to get Terry Date because we love Vulgar Display of Power. I mean, your your bank account probably looks much better uh, you know, having done that album. Well, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, um, uh, you know, that's and that's the way it works for everybody who does what we do. You know, I mean, you get you get one thing that that people like and other people want to do the same thing. I can't tell you how many bands I've worked with that wanted me to get Dimebag sound. Yeah. Make me sound like Dimebag. And I'd have to say, well, you're going to have to have Dimebag come in and play then because 
I can get his exact, I can give you his guitar, his rig, everything exactly, but it's his hands and his head, you know, and his heart. Those are the things that, that made him special. And so people wanted that, a little bit of that sound and that magic. And, um, uh, you know, I, I would always, you know, for me, I would, when somebody asked me that, I always encourage them, you know, I want, I want my next band to ask for your sound. Right. You know, so let's work on that. And, um, you know, so that's where we usually go from that. And the, um, you know, the one thing that I always say about Rex's playing is Rex is very underrated in the band. You know, when, when Dime goes off to do a solo, I mean, Rex is holding it down, you know, under whatever Dime is doing. So what was it like kind of recording with Rex and uh, just, just kind of how unsung he is as a bass player? Rex, I think Rex is the best bass player, especially in the heavy, in, in metal of anybody I've worked with by far. I mean, he had the best tone. He had the best hands. I mean, he knew, he knew when to, when to lay back and he knew when to step up. His, his sensitivity was better than anybody I've worked with as far as bass player goes. And I mean, his tone and it still is amazing. And every, when I, when I hear him, I, I think I did some stuff with, with him not too long ago. Well, it's a little while ago, but his, his bass playing is just, his tone is so good. Cuts through everything. It's heavy. It's anyway. Um, I can't say enough good things about, about him and what he meant to that whole project, all those projects and how good of a bass player he was. He is. <laughs> so, so they go off vulgar display of powers, obviously a uh, big success. And then they come back for Far Beyond Driven. You know, what are your memories of doing Far Beyond Driven? Well, I do remember the, you know, the main conversation was we have to be heavier than vulgar. You know, that was the goal going into it was to be heavier, take it another notch up. Um, That particular record, um, uh, um, Vinny and Dime's dad had moved the studio from uh, Arlington to Nashville um, before that record was made. So we went up to Nashville to um, where the dad's studio was, which was basically in the garage of his house. (laughs) And, um, and so we did all the writing and the basic tracks for the most part there. Um, We all stayed in a, big high rise Holly uh, holiday in or something, you know, in Nashville. Um, And um, I think, I don't know what point of the record, but about halfway through, I think we still had guitars. We still had uh, vocals um, to do. We, there was a falling out or some, some, the guys were ready to go to get out of Nashville and go back to Dallas so we went to Dallas Sound Labs, which is where we met Sterling Winfield. Um, and um, let's see, and Tim. But uh, uh, anyway, we went, we went to, um, went to Dallas Sound Labs and we spent, we did the rest of the record there, mixed it and everything. Um, I think we, yeah. Yeah, I think, yeah, we mixed it at that, at that studio. Um so, you know, they were back in, in Texas where they were more comfortable, um, staying in their own house, you know, eating at their own restaurants where they wanted to go. And, um, um, 
We we definitely there's there's video of um uh, they had a they had a pool table they had a lounge in that studio which was really kind of hard hard on me because the guys were wanting to play pool and not work sometimes so I had to keep things moving forward <clears throat> which is when I got the nickname Richard I think right around that same time so <laughs> <laughs> um and uh oh and Rex gave me one uh yeah hook back yeah that's right because I I always tend to hunch over at the board oh, anyway, um yeah so that those are the things I remember from that from that one we just wanted to the band wanted to be heavier harder more than vulgar and um it took me a while to really understand that, that I think they might have done it you know on that record so you know it vulgar was so um was such a new thing you know it was kind of it was so heavy and so groove oriented it was so good when it came out that it's hard to, to take a notch up but they did i think so one track off of uh vulgar i mean i'm sorry one track off of far beyond driven i want to talk about is becoming and that there's a drum pattern you know when when vinnie comes to you and says like check this out you know what are you thinking when you hear that i was actually there's a i have a i have a polaroid and there's other pictures i've seen of the of um Vinny and Dime working that riff out <clears throat> and Vinny's at his drums Dime is like standing right behind him I'm recording the whole thing uh Dime had just gotten his that whammy pedal that tech yeah. you know octave pedal um so he started playing that riff you know that one and then I heard Vinny's kick drum his feet and I'm going what in the fuck is he doing you know and i had to go out and i said play that what are you doing he goes oh this is easy just this foot does this and this foot does this you know it was it was the coolest little gallopy mm-hmm. pattern that i'd ever heard and for him it was just like you know what what's the big deal <laughs> um must be nice to be that talented oh i know and the two of them together i mean they just there was the on um probably from maybe vulgar, but definitely uh, far beyond driven on when it came time to do uh, dime solos, I would usually just like let Vinny sit and do all the punch-ins, let Vinny and dime work together. I'd get the sound up, the mix going. And then I just kind of sit to the back of the room because those two had a communication that didn't require words. You know, we, the way we would do um, lead guitars is we would take three tracks on the tape, and he would play three solos. And if he was happy with all three, we would take those and we would comp the best pieces out of that. We'd just take chunks. Yeah. Um, so because Vinny and Dime grew up listening to the same stuff, you know, Dime would do a lead. Vinny would look up at him and go, do that Randy Rhodes part instead, <laughs> you know. And so there's not, there's no way I'm going to get a better performance out of Dime, you know, than that, you know, just, you know, um, so that's where I just would say, I'm, I'm right here, but you guys just go, you know, um, and, and it really made a big difference that the, the way those, those two brothers, those two brothers were tighter than any two brothers I'd ever seen. So I'm, I'm assuming it was just a constant mind blow seeing him play guitar live and in person right there, one-on-one you two in a room kind of thing. You know, it is, it isn't, it isn't, um, when you're in the in the moment, you don't 
think about it as much. You know, you know, the guy's good and everything is like really supernatural. But I mean, he would struggle. There were, there were songs that we had to work really, uh, um, walk, mm-hmm. um, took us all day to do, to do the, the guitar part on that. Cause we, we did, um, the the first guitar then we did a double and then we did a triple up the middle um but because of that riff um you know every every um every attack and every palm mute on the two doubles mm-hmm. and the triple they had to be exactly on they they couldn't they couldn't there couldn't be any of this they had to be like this and when you listen to that song in headphones especially when you listen to that song they're so close that they almost phase each other a little bit. And sometimes the palm mute sounds like it's coming behind your head, you know, and, and that's, that, there's no fancy manipulation. That was just hard work. Um, when we went to mastering on that record, um, I think it was with Howie in New York, um, Howie finished, you know, getting it all EQ'd. And, and back then it was, um, everything was going to vinyl. So, when you cut the vinyl, you have to cut it side A all in one run, you know, and then you put on side B and cut that all in one run. There's no stopping. It just is like a continuous play. Okay. Um, so when Howie was ready to do that, he would bring us all, we'd all come in and, he, you know, you sit in front of him and then you just sit down and you just, he just turns it up and he just does his thing. He, he cuts that side A onto it lacquer um i wasn't in there for that because i'd been in there for the you know helping or supposedly helping i've been in there with howie when we were trying to get it figured out um but they played the whole side a and side b and when it was over dime comes out and he's crying just like tears coming down i'm going what's the matter man um and he he said you know that thing was so much work that was so hard to do that record, but it, it was so worth it. You know, he was so happy with it, you know, and that's that passion. He was so emotional that way. So, yeah, he definitely lived, you know, lived the music. So it's, it's, he's one of those people that, you know, you just believed everything that was coming out of his hands was, was from every part of his body. It was, there was never a, a note that he didn't believe in. That's true. And he, I mean, he had good pitch. He, he could tell, you know, he would bend his notes exactly right. Uh, he just, I always felt like that guitar was another appendage to him. You know, it just was so natural on him. Um, and it, it used to frustrate him because again, I'm not a musician. So sometimes when we were doing these things, I'd get, you know, I, I wasn't keeping up with him, you know, and he'd get frustrated and, um, Finally, he said, okay, after we're done tonight, I'm going to teach you how to play guitar. <laughs> and I said, okay. You know, so we sat down the first night. He tried to teach me Johnny Be Good or something. Ten minutes later, he goes, oh, fuck it. And we left. <laughs> <laughs> Drinks. <laughs> uh, so anyway, he, but he was, it was so natural with him, you know. So good. Uh, so far beyond Gri- driven comes together and becomes a number one album. You know, how insane is that for a band as heavy as Pantera to come out? Number one. It, it was again, you know, it was, it was, I think we were pretty, I'm sure I was very happy at the time. <laughs> um, 
but you know, if things were going, there was so much coming out at the time. It's so much happening that, um, you know, I was, I wasn't part of any celebration with them because they probably did it somewhere else. And I was in a studio somewhere else and we would talk about it. We were happy, of course, but there was, uh, you know, just so much going on. They were on world tours, you know, they were dealing with all the mayhem that goes along with being the kind of band that they were. Um, and, and I was in a studio with somebody else. So it was, it was, it was a really nice notation, but again, a lot of those things become more important as I get farther away from them. True. All right. So they go back, you know, they come back to you for the great Southern trend kill. And I've always, I've always said that, you know, that from Cowboys to vulgar to far beyond driven to, to great Southern trend kill, just continue to get heavier and heavier. Um, you know, what are your memories of uh, the great Southern trend kill coming together? Well, that one, um, we built, a studio in uh, Dimebag's garage out behind his house. It was a, he had bought a house in Arlington. There was like a big kind of a, it was a RV garage basically. So it was really high ceilings. We built a little um, control room there, um, a little recording area, um, stocked it with some gear. They had, they bought a board like their dad's board cause they liked it. Um, and they were going to record it all onto little ADAT digital tapes. And I said, I'm not going to make a record onto ADAT tapes. <laughs> I said, we need to get a tape deck in here and whatever. So we got a tape deck in and then we started testing it out to record. And there was just this horrendous low end everywhere, you know, on, on all the tracks. What the fuck? You know, couldn't figure it out. Couldn't figure it out. Finally, we had to ended up moving, the tape deck out into the recording room and running cables to it because that was the only place where it wouldn't make all kinds of noise. And bear in mind, me and Aaron, you know, their sound guy, we were building the studio ourselves, you know, so this is totally like do it yourself. Um, anyway, we couldn't figure out what the hell was going on with that whole thing. And then uh, Dime walks in <clears throat> and he goes, Gee, I wonder if it's that 50,000 kilowatt power line that's buried underneath the house. It's running underneath the control room. So there was a main power line that was underground right underneath there. So that's what was doing it. But making the record, we had our tape deck out in the live room. As you know, probably, um, they drank a lot of Coors Light. And um, so a lot. I mean, cases and cases every day. Um, so out in the main room, everybody's out there recording, drink a Coors Light, and then you just toss it, toss it. And I go out there after a while and I look at the tape deck and there's Coors Light cans all over the tapes. You know, <laughs> they've been landing on the tape deck while the tape was recording or was rolling the whole thing. So I had to build a case around the tape deck so the Coors Light cans wouldn't hit the tape deck. <laughs> um, so that was one of my memories from that record. Um, uh, that was also the first record I had my assistant Ulrich Wild on. He had never experienced anything like that in his life before. Uh, he got a nickname. I think it was called Heim Heimlich Maneuver. Um, <laughs> and uh, uh, let's see, also on that one, Phil had moved back to New Orleans. 
Um, so he was kind of flying in when the, when the band would have some songs kind of worked out. Phil would fly in and they would tweak them, fix them up. And then, uh, when it came time for, um, for vocals, I left Ulrich in Dallas to continue working with Vinny and Dime on guitar stuff. And then I went to, uh, Trent Reznor's studio at okay. the time and, um, in New Orleans. And then I, I had a, a rough mix of all the songs. I put that onto two tracks on the tape and then Phil sang, did all his vocals to that. And then I brought that back and I synced it up to the main tape. So, um, anyway, that was, I think it probably took two weeks to do the vocals on that one. We did them all in the control room. It was a huge control room. I mean, Phil was probably 20 feet behind me at least and he had floor floor wedges like live um so um he had plenty of you know plenty of space and we had good communication um but yeah he'd come in at seven o'clock every night work for two hours have a song done hmm. he did that every night until the record was done so um then i flew back to uh to dallas and played it for everybody because this is in the days before, you know, you couldn't sh throw stuff over the internet. You had to get on a plane with the tape. So, um, uh, and then we, I can't remember much after that other than, oh, I tried to mix it there at Dime's place. <clears throat> I couldn't do it. I finally had to tell him I got to take this to LA where I'm, you know, place where I'm comfortable mm -hmm. because I can't, I can't do it here. They, they were disappointed, but, um, they understood. And that's the time, obviously, when Phil, Phil and the rest of the band is kind of uh, internally struggling. Is that is that something that you know you're with the band for the entire career? Is that something that you see? And it, does that type of stuff bum you out when you see bands kind of starting to drift apart? Um, um yeah, I guess it. I don't, I don't, you know, I don't pay attention to it because um, the way I look at it and the way I talk to them is you don't have time for this bullshit. You know, <laughs> figure it out. Yeah. You know, you know, and you know, it's not that big a deal in the, in, you know, whatever. Um, I, I didn't let it bother me. Um, I could tell that, um, you know, Finney and Dime wanted to go to New Orleans when, when the vocals were going down, you know, they wanted to be involved with it because they, you know, they had opinions about the vocals too. Um, but filled it. I'm, I didn't know this, but Phil must not have wanted him. He wanted to do it himself at that point. So yeah, he was having troubles at that time as far as, but he kept that all from me because I'm more like a dad, you know, <laughs> I'm, I'm more like, you know, they, he, they kept all that, they, you know, they kept it from me. So, um, uh, I didn't, I didn't know Phil was having the problems he was having. I know it's a little, it's obviously way more commonplace now for people to do, you know, their, their bass at this one place and their guitars here. But at the time, you know, Phil doing vocals away from the band in an entirely different state. I mean, was that something common or was that like, a, uh, you know, trying to figure out how we're going to do this and, and, and kind of learning on the fly? Um, well, a little bit of learning on the fly for me. Um, cause I had to figure out technically how to, how to make it work, you know, um, uh, 
typically with Pantera, we would only use one reel of tape, you know, um, usually get three songs on one reel. In other words, 24 tracks. Yeah. I, I wouldn't make multiple reel. I, you know, I'd keep it at 24 tracks. So I had to make sure I had, um, a tape with, um, I don't even remember how I did it now, but probably had a tape with, with a rough mix on a couple of tracks. And then, um, and then I put the vocals in and then I, I synced the vocals up somehow. I can't remember how I did it now. I'd have to look at the tracks again to figure it out. But, um, yeah, I was, uh, you know, as far as the, just physically doing it without the band there, when a band's on their fourth record, you know, that's not that unusual. They want space to do it. You know, sometimes when a band is, is four or five records in, they don't even want me around. You know, singer, you know, knows how to do it. He knows how to record himself. He'll just, Chris Cornell used to do that, not with me, but after me, yeah. he would just take his stuff and record his stuff at home by himself. So um, anyway, it was, uh, Phil and I always got along really well. So I had a blast when I was down there working. I mean, Oh, I, I bet. had a good time with him. So, and just kind of, you know, once again, you know, you go into the uh, to do the remix and remasters of the of the latest album. So, I mean, you kind of get your your hands on all of the albums, and and you know, you're a part of the entire legacy of the band now and the career of the band. And just kind of looking back over your time with Pantera and the band itself, you know, obviously we're we're twenty plus years away now from the band and uh, you know, what are your thoughts on the band now, you know, now that you can hindsight being 2020, I guess. Well, I, you know, it, it nothing that I say is, isn't, isn't, you know, it, it's going to be anything that you don't know already, you know, and I, they're, they're the best band in that genre. I think, you know, as far as uh, the groove metal and dime is, you know, he's the best guitar player of that genre. There's just, it's hard to, to deny that. Um, Vinny, incredibly underrated drummer, you know, I think. I think he should be on the same level as, as Dime is on guitar. Rex should be on the same level on bass. Phil should be on the same level on vocals. I mean, those guys, you have four guys that are all the, the top guys in their, um, on their instrument. That's pretty hard to beat. Absolutely. Uh, but as we wrap this up, I do want to sneak in a Deftones question on you. Uh, sure. We just passed the 20th anniversary of White Pony, so I, I'd be uh, an idiot not to ask you about that because it's you know there were, there were probably millions and millions of babies conceived to that record. <laughs> <laughs> well, I hope they're good ones. <laughs> uh, what are your memories of doing that with uh, with Tino and the guys? Well, that was uh, you know again those guys are like family to me. You know, I, I just, you know, I, I talk to those guys still, I don't know, two, three times a month, maybe, maybe more when we're doing the record here the last, in the last year, um, you know, we spent a lot of time together, but that record, every record with those guys is special because they're family, you know, um, it, I don't know if you can see, but over in the corner, over, uh, see if I can do this. It's all backwards, right? There, that second picture. <laughs> That's my daughter when she was a year and a half old. Yeah, maybe two years old. Mm-hmm. Sitting behind Abe's drums during uh-huh. the White Pony sessions. Oh, that's amazing. Um, 
So my daughters, you know, they grew up with the Deftones guys. They had nicknames for them. Um, uh, still, I still talk to, you know, there's, they're still just like family. So making that record was, um, kind of the band was sort of fighting a little, a lot during that record. You know, they were, that was their third record, I believe. Yeah. And that's usually the time when, you know, we've been on the road together a lot. Uh, you know, a lot of external pressures going on, you know, maybe drugs involved, you know, all the things that contribute to anxiety. And then you throw everybody into a heavily creative situation where you're trying to outdo your last really creative situation. Anyway, that, so it, there was, a, there was a lot of, um, a lot of arguing, but, um, with those guys, it was like brothers arguing, you know, yeah. they, they, it would get elevated and heated, but they would always hug afterwards. So, um, making that record was, that was a special record. You know, we, we, we did that in San Francisco, um, at, uh, actually it was Metallica's studio, um, studio where they did a lot of their stuff. Um, the, the plant, um, and uh, I'd actually done another record there um, maybe 10 years earlier, um, uh, Mother Love Bone. Oh, nice. Um, that was the first record I did in that place. So that's kind of why I brought Deftones there, because I liked, I liked the place. So anyway, um, special record, you know. Oh, and yeah. Every, every record I do with those guys, it's special. They're just, you know, Chino Lives a three hour drive away from me right now, you know, so it was easy for him to come up to my studio here. And we, we did second half of the record here, mixed it, everything. Um, and you know, the rest of the guys aren't too far away either. So I, I, I talk to him or see him all the time. Fantastic. And uh, congratulations on ohms. I mean, that's pretty much been on tons of people's top, you know, top records of 2020. So, uh, you know, Ohm's definitely uh, knocked it out the park. I just wish, and we all do, that those guys could have gone out and played those songs live, you know, and they will eventually, I know, but it's really, this is the first time it's really weird to put all that time into a record and then just put it out right. without any kind of support, no live touring, nothing so the fans can see the band play the songs live. It's it's really tough, but um, it was a good record. And if you know, I'll swing around here, there's my there's my progress board for that record still up on the wall back there. That's, that's <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. that's amazing. Yeah. So anyway, well, Terry Date, man, it's uh, you know, when you start a Pantera podcast, there's a handful of people on the bucket list, and to get you crossed off so early in this thing, uh, it's pretty amazing, Terry. Thanks for taking the time. Well, thanks for doing it. I mean, uh, it's so nice that people really appreciate all those bands, but Pantera, especially, you know, that was, that was a special one. <laughs>